This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. Welcome back. And I just had a thought that we actually haven't done anyone from literature in a very long time. We haven't. Do you know why, though? Because I <laughs> statistically, those are our least popular episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good. There's a good enough reason to not do anyone from literature for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll get around to it this season. We will, yeah. Yeah, of course. We'll, we'll, we'll try something. and get one in there. We'll try and yeah. get one in there for yeah. those literature nerds out there. We know you exist. We acknowledge you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we haven't forgotten you. Yeah, we'll get back to literature at some point in the future. But for the time being, tell us, where are we going this time around? Well, this is one of those stories where history and mythology are very much intertwined. It, Love it. It's because we're going so far back in history. Yes. The written records are, I mean, there, there are records. There are mm-hmm. records. Mm-hmm. They exist. We know this woman was real. We know she did some stuff. The extent of that stuff, however, that's where the legend of this woman comes in and she's a pretty legendary woman. Like she's the type of person who you make films about. She's the type of person who you write books about, which (laughs) like she's so special amongst our pantheon of women because you would never make a film or write a book about her, any of the rest of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The rest of them would be so boring. Why would you do that? Why would you Why? do that? But does that mean then if we're going back in history, we're going further back in history than the 1800s what? slash early 1900s? Is there, is there even time before the 1800s? <laughs> is there time, time before? Does time exist before the Bellapox slash Victorian times? Does According it to this season, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so we are. We're stretching the space-time continuum. And we're going to stretch it real hard. We're stretching mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. flexing it about, what, like seven, 800 years into the past. <gasps> we're going to the 14th century. Oh, can it even be done? Did it even happen? Teen. Did it happen, Alicia? This is the question. <laughs> Who can say? When Were did any of us time there? begin? No. When? <laughs> no one knows. Time just started now, perhaps. It did. Excellent. I am so, so glad that we're going to be going somewhere very, very different in the world for a change. Oh, speaking of which, where in the world? Where in the world? Where? We're going to, well, actually, okay, yeah, this is not super original. We're going to France. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Oh, We We have spent some time in France recently. We have. Metaphorically, not literally. We have been in our homes, literally. (laughs) We have been shut in our country, unable (laughs) to get out. However, yes, we are going back to France, but this is a very different France. We're hardly in Belle Epoque Paris right now. Like mm-hmm. this is pretty mm-hmm. far from Belle Epoque Paris. We're going to medieval Brittany and we're going to cross the English Channel. We're going to spend some time in England and we're going to be in the courts of King Philip. Ooh. Philip? Philippe? Philippe? Philippe. I'd say Philippe, surely. Philippe, the court of King Philippe and King Edward. They do have numbers after their names. Philippe and Edward. Edward, Eddie. Um, Edward. <laughs> they it. do have numbers after their names. I've written them down somewhere. They're not the first of their names. No one ever is. But I don't have <laughs> their numbers in front of me right now. Somebody <laughs> has to be the first of their names, though. Look, yeah. But then even then they get the first. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, they're still the first. It's still like a moniker, though, isn't it's not it? Like, it's not like Philippe. Point O. No, it's Edward the Third. Uh huh. Good. And Philippe Point O. And Philippe the Sixth. Yeah, I'm sure everybody knows exactly who they are. You you all know their biographies very well. I trust. Well, I am very glad that you did distinguish between them because otherwise <laughs> I would have been confused. You I wouldn't do... want to confuse it for Edward the Second or for well, Philippe the Fifth. To be honest, I do know a little bit about the King Edwards. 
Do I don't you? Any, I don't know anything about the Philippes. Nothing no. about your Philippes. No, sorry, Philippes. I know Philipping nothing about them. <laughs> Thank you. That's Go again. Not. I'll be good. here all week trying to shoot them. <laughs> you know what? I have been watching. We started watching last night. The Great. Have you heard of this show? No, I haven't. It's a new show. I think in Australia it's on Stan, and I think maybe it's a Hulu show if you're in the US. But it's about Catherine the Great of Russia. <gasps> Okay. And about her coup d'etat on mm. Peter. And mm. it's great. It's fabulous. It's it's written by the guy who wrote The Favourite. Oh, which was a terrific film. Yes. Yeah. And so I've been in a very courtly state of mind. I did start watching this after I had written all my notes for this episode. And they're, they're very far apart, hundreds of years in between these two stories. However, I'm feeling the courtly... Mm-hmm. You're in the zone. You're in the zone. The zone. Yeah, yep. and that's a fabulous show. I very fab- highly – I think you'd like it, Alicia. Fab- I think you. you should watch it. All right. Sure. You know I won't, but thank you. No, do. What else have you got going on? <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> I'm very busy at the moment. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I mean I just finished watching Lego Masters, so I guess there's an opening. There is. There is. Mm. Uh, anyway, let's talk about today's woman. We are talking about – Jeanne de Clisson, the de Clisson. axe-wielding lady pirate bent on vengeance. Yay! Lady pirate. We haven't done a lady pirate in a while. No, and it's time we got back into them. Mm, so I'm, I think I'm was she, she our last lady pirate that we tackled? She probably was. That yeah, was last I think so. season. That was... The first episode of last season, I believe. Anyway, Jean was also known as the Lioness of Brittany, which is fantastic. We started to talk about the kind of monikers and the titles that Mm. our women have been gifted uh, over the years, and I feel like the Lioness of Brittany is up there. That's pretty good. we have a contender for best title in this episode. So we have Mm. two contenders, actually. There's a trio of of women who are going to come up in this story and I would, I would like us to maybe think about all three of them at the end. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm, I, I can do that. I'm on board. Now, as I said, this is a story where history and myth are very deeply intertwined. And this is largely because while, yes, we do have documented records that show us that she existed, a lot of what she did and how she did it, particularly, I guess, well, her pirate career, this is very much built on hearsay and very much built on the legends that cropped up in her time and sort of defined her within her own age and then got passed on, right? Mm, mm-hmm. So we take these with a grain of salt. However, I am going to tell us a story. This is a story, right? I like stories. I like them a lot. So we begin our tale in 1300, the year anno 1300, okay. as <laughs> Jean-Louis de Bayville. Dame de Montagu. <laughs> yep, love it. Great. No, no, sorry about that. Uh, daughter of Maurice the Fourth of Belleville. <laughs> Belleville. Maurice. Montagu. Maurice. That doesn't sound right. Maurice. Maurice. If you don't know the Maurice is a French name, then you didn't watch enough Beauty and the Beast as a child. Sorry. Because Maurice is Belle's father's name, and as oh, we know, true. they are French. So. It is, isn't it? But mm-hmm. it just makes it like Maurice. Maurice. A. Maurice. Sup. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, her mother's name was much more French, if this suits you better. Her name was Lettice de Partenay. Oh, lettuce. I like it. That's much more. Lettuce. Lettice. Lettice, not lettuce. And in case you can't tell from the very, very fucking long names that we have there, they were noble. Okay. Noble Mm -hmm. as fuck. Now, as is common in our noble Middle Ages stories, we don't know very much. Not in our Middle Aged nobles. No. No, No, quite the opposite because we're talking about the childhood of young Jean de Clisson, of which my point is we don't know very much. Right. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, unusual. Why would we? Who's going to chronicle that? She probably had a very typical childhood of a noble girl, which would have included certain kinds of education. We've talked about this before. However, (laughs) something that is very disturbing to us in this, the year 2020, is that as a noble 
girl child. She was, of course, married at a very oh, yeah. young age, at the age of 12. Yep, that sounds – that's pretty standard. Let's go it with 12. It is. Yep. It is very standard. And, look, we all know we don't agree with this, but – we are of a different time and of a mm. different culture and we have to acknowledge that, <laughs> you know, well, that is important. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, of course, the, as we've discussed before, you know, this is the age where many girls start to menstruate, which means mm. once you've started mm. to menstruate, you're capable of pumping out some airs, which means that, you know, this is apparently. the idea. <laughs> apparently, yeah. yeah. Apparently, that's a good idea for really – actually children yeah. but that was the theory at the time but it's also a time when life expectancy was lower when yeah, you true. genuinely had a better chance of surviving childbirth or giving birth if you were younger and fitter and stronger and so there are other factors at play but yes she was married at 12 to a man named jeffrey de no that doesn't see how i go with any- this that doesn't sound jeffrey it, no. jeffrey yes. jeffrey jeffrey de- Chateaubriand. The chateau. The something castle. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he was 19, which I think, look, it could have been worse. It could be worse. He wasn't 35. Okay. So, yeah. Now, they they had two children. Another Jeffrey when she was 14. And two years later, Louise, who actually lived a very long life and eventually inherited the family estate and became a baroness. So that's a good news story for Louise. Now, again, we don't know heaps about this marriage. He was wealthy. She was noble, etc. I really can't comment. I have no idea what happened during their marriage. (laughs) But in 1326, he died. So she's about, well, 26 at this stage, Mm, 25, 26. Mm -hmm. She's Mm -hmm. got two children. I don't know. Maybe he was the worst and this was a good thing or maybe he was great and she was really sad. Mm. We don't know. It's the Middle Ages. We'll never know. No one talked about this stuff. In 1328, so just two years later, she married again. This time it was to a man named Guy de Pentivre. Oh, no. All these French words. Pentivre. Well, sure. <laughs> and he was the son of the Duke of Brittany. Now, okay. my guess, and this is my sort of putting a few pieces of the puzzle together, my guess is that it might have been some sort of love match because Ooh. his family were decidedly not into it. Okay? Ah, okay. So he's from a very ancient and important line Mm -hmm. he's got one of those like quadruple barreled names where you have this family and this family and this family and they're all meshed together and it's all very very important and he was particularly had a faction of his family who were the de blois side of his family and that is a very important name in this story the de blois family they were not on board with this marriage they were pretty much worried that Jean was just interested in his, you know, grand ducal heritage. And so they petitioned the bishops to conduct an investigation. Ooh. So do you do you have any idea what I might be referring to when I when I say to conduct an investigation? How do you tear apart two people who are married in the 14th century? And why might you need a bishop to do that? So this is to break the marriage up, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no divorce. No divorce. That doesn't come along for another right. 200-something years. Okay. So I guess it's about whether or not the marriage has been consummated. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And again, this is me reading between lines, so I can't prove that this is what this investigation was, but this is a term that is used when we have people trying to find out if they can prove a marriage has not been consummated so that they can have the Pope annul the marriage. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was what they used to do with royalty, right? Mm, they used mm. to actually like, you know, like with Marie Antoinette, the you know, the very famous stories about the fact that on that first night of their marriage, all the royals came yeah. through their bedroom to, to watch. watch them go to bed together. Watch them do it. 
Because yeah. it's like that's <laughs> yeah. the essential thing is, right, we need yeah. to make sure there are witnesses to say this marriage has been consummated yeah, so no totally. one can come back and say Sex it was not private in court, like, at <laughs> no. all. No. Because, like you said, this is all. so important. It's You need yeah. to be able to prove it. Otherwise, it just ends up mm. someone's word against somebody else's word. Yeah. And so it worked. They were able to prove Well, uh, look, I don't know if the marriage was never consummated. Who can say? But they felt like there was enough evidence to suggest this. And I'm sure that there was probably really what this was was a lot of political bargaining. Yeah. But if you, if you said it was probably a love match, then wouldn't it have been consummated? Well, I would. that's my assumption. I would yeah. assume so. I don't know why they would have got married against his family's wishes and not boned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the boning is the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So mm. in 1330, Pope John the 22nd annulled the marriage. Now, oh, feel good because I didn't want to get him confused with the 21st yeah. or the 23rd. No, no, I know. Yeah. There's so many Johns. Yeah. Oh, why? So <laughs> many. Anyway. So Guy, Guy, however you say, then I think it's Guy in French. Guy. I think, you're, Guy. I think Guy is correct. Yeah. Guy went on to marry another woman named Marie de Blois. Remember that name? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So that the family liked them. Uh-huh. So she was the niece of King Philippe of France. Ooh, However, fancy. Guy soon died, leaving his estate to his daughter from his first marriage, another woman named Jeanne. Now oh she's going to come up a little bit. A uh, bit if everyone playing along at home is confused, that's fine. There's a lot of names. I'm going to try my best to make sure we're all on track. And it's your job, Alicia. You are the representative of the people and it's your job to tell me if anything's getting lost in translation and I will try to clarify. The people are confused. The people don't know what's going on. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So basically they're no longer married. He went on and married another really important lady in an important family who are very important in the story. That's Dies. pretty much the only thing. And he's dead anyway. So it doesn't Daughter matter. gets everything. So it's not long before she's on to husband number three. <sighs> Holy crapola. I know. What? <laughs> Alicia, it's the Middle Ages. She's a yeah. single mother with two young children to feed. Give her a break. Yep, that's fine. And people were dying all the time. Yes. In the Middle Ages. Yeah. This time she married a man named Olivier de Clisson. So this is where she gets her name. Ah, uh, de, de Clisson. Yeah. And this was the one. He was wealthy. He had a castle, the de Clisson. Nice. Chateau de Clisson. He'd only been married one other time. So. <laughs> fresh. Quite a catch. Quite yeah. a catch. The lands held between the two of them were rather bountiful, let's mm. just say. So by their powers combined, they became the most Captain pow- Planet. <laughs> no. They became the most powerful family in the region. So this made them seigneurial lords, okay? Ooh. So they're very powerful. Now, whether or not they actually really loved, loved each other or just loved all that, power that their combined lands gave them is of course up for debate yeah they did have five children together oh yeah but i mean you don't have to be in love to have five children together as we know so true so (laughs) the other children were isabeau maurice guillaume olivier another olivier and another jean why do they always do this to us they, Just to confuse the hell out of everyone. People of the past had no consideration for the historians of the future <laughs> trying to did, trace their family lineages back. And they didn't even give them a number either. No. It wasn't even like, <laughs> like everybody else gets a number. Sometimes they named siblings the same name as we saw with Marie Laveau. Anyway, yeah. that's another story. So now here's a little tidbit that I don't know what to do with. I didn't have <laughs> enough information at my disposal to be able to come to a conclusion about this. And perhaps somebody out there knows the answer. Now, her first daughter with Olivier, Isabeau, was apparently born in 1325. Now, I don't know mm. if you guys have been paying attention to Wait, the dates. Wait, wasn't she born in, like... Jean was born in 1300. Yeah. But she married Olivier after 1330. So how is this possible? Mm, how is this possible? I don't know. This would make Isabeau born before her second husband, Guy, had died. Mm. I don't know. Maybe this is part of the reason why Guy's family weren't into her. 
Uh-huh. I haven't seen anything that's really acknowledged this little hiccup in the dates and what it implies. Look, there's also every reason to suggest that it was just a mistake of the paperwork because that's mm. pretty common mm. as well. But anyway, do with that little bit of information what you will. I'm not going to cast aspersions on it, but there it is. Except you already have. I'm just throwing up <laughs> some potential <laughs> things. It was interesting. I, like it. I noticed it and I was like, what? And why isn't anyone talking about this in any of the commentary about it? Mm. Anyway, but what may suggest to us that they did love each other, like properly loved each other in that courtly love kind of a way, mm. yeah. is how a fucking batshit Jean <laughs> went in her quest for revenge. Oh, revenge. Do you want to hear what fired up her quest for revenge? What sparked what? the flames of vengeance? Beneath oh. Jean de Clisson's skirts. <laughs> right. So either he, like, betrayed her with another lover or he was murdered. Let's tell a story. So this thing. I thought we already were. Let's <laughs> tell another one. Here's a story within a story. Are you ready to unpack it? A story it. within a story. Okay. So there was a conflict between the Counts of Blois, remember, the, the Blois family. Yep, got them. Okay. Yep. And another family called the Montforts, okay? Right, they were both right, fighting right. for control of the Duke of Brittany because the old Duke of Brittany had died without leaving an heir. Now, oh. this conflict is very important. Basically, it pitted the French who supported mm-hmm. the Dubois family, mm-hmm. led by Charles de Bois. He was the guy who was supposed to inherit the throne. He yep. had a daughter named Joanna. Right. Okay. She would be his heir presumptive against the English who supported the Montford claim led by John Montford, who was, had a male heir. What a surprise. Yes. So Brittany, if you don't know, is located in the northwest of France. Okay. So this is a very important strategical region for both of these countries who, again, don't know if you know your history, but this is the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. This is the beginning of them hating each other. Yeah. Well, they'd hated each other for they a while. They hated each other for a while. And then, and then Eurovision. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so many reasons to hate each other. <laughs> so, yeah, this conflict is actually one of the leading causes of the Hundred Years' War. Okay. Mm, okay. So very important conflict, very high stakes, big strategic territory up for grabs. Okay. All right. Got it. So according to some sources, Jean had been married to John Monfort at some point, but I don't know if that's true what? because I couldn't find this verified anywhere else. And I suspect perhaps that Jean de Clisson is being confused for another Jean. <sighs> Bloody hell. Joanna of Flanders, but more about her soon. Okay. So, okay, we've got all our players, okay? Remember, we have Charles de Blois, John got Monfort. Got it. Fighting. Now, Olivier... Arr. Her husband, fighting. <laughs> Olivier, her husband, he had fought on the side of the French, supporting the Dubois claim. However, the whole de Clisson clan were not on board with this choice. And Olivier's brother actually supported the Montford claim. Okay. Right. Are you right. still with me? Yep. And the don't people worry. People are sort of confused, but they're okay. mainly following. We're going to get to the pirates soon. It's okay. okay. So in 1342, the English captured the city of Vannes. Olivier had been a military commander defending this city. So this was a bad time for him. A city Olivier- in Brittany, I assume? Yes. 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 Mm. Olivier was captured along with the rest of the city. Now, the ransom for his release was, uh, let's just say, suspiciously low, okay, <laughs> which led Charles de Blois. Blois is a really hard word to say, by the way. Blois. Okay. To begin to doubt Olivier's loyalty. He mm. wondered... Might he have defected to the English? So he told the king. Well, getting to it. it. He told the king about his suspicions, and so they set up an elaborate ruse. They would hold a tournament to celebrate their new truce, and they invited their friend Olivier to join them. What do you think happened at the tournament? Ah, well, it was a trap. It was a trap. It's a trap. It was a trap. They captured Olivier and tried him with treason. (gasps) So 
on August the 2nd, 1343, Olivier was beheaded at oh. Le Halle. His head was mounted on a pole outside the castle. Yikes. <sighs> Shit. Because, <laughs> Alicia, as you <gasps> may know, hell hath no fury like a woman like a scorned. scorned. Dun, dun, dun. Revenge. Revenge. And what better way to revenge by than becoming a pirate? Pretty much. Yeah, but this is like, okay, something that's very surprising I think about her story is, well, A, we don't tend to associate pirates with the Middle Ages, for one. And this is a few hundred years before the golden age of piracy. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. But also we don't tend to associate piracy with noble women of the Middle Ages. No. I think no. The, the more typical image of no, – like when you close your eyes and you picture in your mind's eye the stereotypical image of a noble woman from the medieval times, what do you see? Oh, it's like Maid Marian. Yeah. You know, there she is. She's a damsel in distress. Wearing her she, cone hat. Yeah, with a streamer right. staring yeah. out a tower window. Yeah, just staying around. Looking longingly. At home, doing some, you know, embroidery yeah. from time to time. Yep. Pumping out some kids. Making tapestries. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much all you got. It is. It is, I think, what so many of us think of when we spend the time thinking about, you know, medieval nobility, which... Of course, everybody does from time to time, right? <laughs> Who hasn't? Who hasn't sat down and given that a good long two-hour think? <laughs> but we do have this image of women who don't have any agency or power. But this isn't quite the case because it's really far more a matter of class and, well, power. Mm. So for noble women particularly, like de Clisson, particularly those with a lot of land and thus with land comes power because yeah. with land comes you know, taxes and, you know, uh, you have large estates. Estates, yeah. Look at – what is that joke from Monty Python, you know, where he's looking out the window and he's like, yes, her huge tracts of land. You know what I'm talking about? No. No? Okay. From the Holy Grail? I can't think of that. She has huge boobs, but instead he's talking about her huge tracts of land. Oh, That's what yes. Makes yeah, 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 I do. Anyway. Yeah, anyway. Anyway. Anyway, huge tracts of land give you huge power. And that means that her authority was really no different to a man's. So Mm -hmm. in the absence of her husband, she was the Lord. Yeah. And her wielding her authority over the lands was not as uncommon as we might think. So remember that this is a time when many wars, many battles, men were often away fighting. And this meant that women spent a lot of time not just managing their own households, as we might assume, and which they did, yeah, but running the estate and taking part in politics. Yeah. Where and those the- estates often had so many, you know, indentured servants, whether mm. they were indentured servants or so many people living on those lands and estates. Absolutely. were the ones paying you taxes essentially. Yes. So yeah. it is this sort of system where you are at the top of the chain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got huge numbers of people in, you know, entire towns and villages, mm. you know, under yeah. your leadership. So it's, not, it's not like you're just managing, you know, when we talk about estates, it's not like you're just managing these big empty barren fields of mm, no know, no pretty gardens all. or whatever no it we're talking about functional towns lands yeah, and yeah. agriculture and people who are farming on your behalf basically yeah. really yeah. <laughs> you know these are feudal tides yeah so they did this whether they were standing in for their husbands whether they were ruling alongside them or ruling on their own for any number of reasons and they did this without being seen as any less legitimate and actually, according to scholar Kimberly A. Lopret, the whole idea of the domestic and private realm, which is something that we've talked about before, particularly in many of our episodes that do take place in the Victorian times. So that kind of, yeah, the world of looking after the home and domesticity and being a good mother and all that sort of stuff. And looking after the house, looking after the family and the public realm of politics and commerce, the idea of these as being a separate in the Middle Ages is actually quite false. Mm. The two mm-hmm. overlapped very much. And so the power that women wielded within the home kind of transferred to the power that she held over her lands. Yeah. Yeah. However... The big caveat to this, of course, is that while they might have been able to have this kind of political and commercial power, they were still expected 
to be feminine and unlike their husbands they were not expected to rush off to battle or exhibit any kinds of like violent tendencies Mm. (laughs) they were most definitely not expected to be pirates no because really they're and she's come up oh so many many times but really the their image of perfect womanhood they were expected to look no further than mary mother of christ the pillar of womanhood exceptional in her perfection except that of course despite this exceptionalism women were expected to be exactly like her yeah so (laughs) you know impossible good womanhood now jean de clisson had held up her end of the bargain though right she was the mother to seven children she married, oh, remarried quickly when her first husband died and her second marriage was annulled. You know, she was like playing the game. She was doing what was expected to her. But what she did, that was a little bit more unusual, though not actually completely exceptional, as we shall see, was to take to the seas in search of sweet, sweet revenge. Now, how, how is taking to the seas going to play out her revenge? All right. Okay. I will tell you. Because, <laughs> I mean, aren't the guys that beheaded her husband just in the town next door? But, <laughs> okay. So why actually, does she need a pirate ship to get them? Actually, first. Okay, no, there's a good reason for that because you're absolutely correct. Yes, Charles de Blois was on land. The king yeah. was on land. And, yes, absolutely. She first attacked them on land. So, oh, she did. Oh, okay. Yeah, she did. And so basically, I mean, like she was angry, obviously. I think we've established that she was angrily and rightfully so. Her husband had been accused of treason with very little evidence. He'd also been executed publicly, which at the time was a sentence that was really reserved for mm, the common mm, people. Yeah, right. We also have documents that show that Olivier confessed But if we know anything about how confessions were extracted at the time, like... You take that with a grain of salt. Exactly. For sure. So according to Clisson, the king committed murder. This is her Mm. frame of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, so what she did first was she took her two sons, and they were children, by the way. They were five and seven years old. She took them to Nantes to see their father's head upon the Solitude Gate. Yikes. Yes. Just to traumatise them a little bit. To tra- – <laughs> yes, I think it, maybe it did traumatise them. It was it certainly had some long-lasting impacts for one of them. <laughs> but really I think that she wanted to instill in them the same yeah. desire for revenge that she felt because these are her sons. These are the men who are carrying their father's name mm. and who are going to go out in the world and fight not on his behalf but for his honour. Yeah. You know, so she needs them to know what a big deal this is. And she needs them to feel the anger and the horror that she is feeling. And so she swore vengeance against Charles and against the king and urged her sons to do the same. So I guess like, well, kind of ironically, I suppose, in executing one Clisson as a traitor, they had indeed turned the rest of the Clissons to treason. Ha ha, they're Grown many heads where one had been cut off. <laughs> yes, good metaphor. They did Thank indeed. You. They did indeed. Oh. And now this many-headed dragon was coming to attack. So she took up a sword, which is not something that many women of her time did. Though not no women. As I said, I keep planting this little seed of not <laughs> no one. So she first attacked pro-French forces on land in Brittany. So legend has it that she came, I'm not sure which fort or castle she came to, but she came as this poor, helpless widow, like, oh, please help me and my sons, who would turn such a woman away? And then once inside, like a Trojan horse, she struck, taking out all but one survivor. She then attacked, yeah, she attacked two castles and a garrison and the garrison had actually once been controlled by her husband, Olivier. Mm. And so, of course, unsurprisingly, she was too declared a traitor and some of her lands were confiscated. So does she have any battle training? Like where does she come out? Like come out of the (laughs) gates swinging a sword and is good enough to like take down... A whole household of 
Yeah. I would assume someone Look, in that household's got to be armed. <laughs> How I wish that. I wish I had an answer for you. I suspect, to be honest, that this is her leading paid mercenaries. Yeah. Perhaps. It's not just her on her own. Yeah. I actually don't know. And this is the thing about the story the facts are blurry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Legend has taken over. Like I said, there's this story about her coming to the garrison as a helpless widow. I don't yeah. know if that's true. In all likelihood, she probably had paid men with her. I yeah. don't, but I also can't say that that's true either because I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So because of this, because she had now been declared a traitor, things became very risky, right? So she was forced to take to the seas and try to escape to England. Aha. Okay. Now there's a reason to be on the sea. Yes, that's right. So she's on the ship with her sons on her way to England and a storm hits. Okay. I like it. I like and it. This, well, no. No, you don't like it, Alicia. Oh, I just meant I liked it in terms of the atmosphere. Okay. Well, there's a lot of atmosphere. There's rain lashing down. There's winds blowing a gale. And Jean and her two sons <gasps> are not doing so great, to be honest. Unfortunately, they were set adrift. Oh. And her son, Guillaume, he died of exposure. Oh, no. Yeah. He was seven. Oh, that's okay. That's yeah, sad. That's it tragic. is sad. It is. Luckily, however, they did eventually arrive in England. So she and her son arrived in England. Apparently, they also had her other daughter, Jean, with them as well. But she's not really mentioned much because, of course, she's a girl. So she arrives in England. I guess she probably took stock of her situation and was like, right, fuck this. She's just <laughs> lost her husband. Now she's lost her son and she's ready to fuck some more shit up. Luckily, yeah. she was a woman with important friends. Some very oh. important friends. Friends are the most important thing. They are, aren't they? I love you, oh. friend Lauren. <laughs> I know that you would come to my aid if I had to turn to piracy. What a nice moment. I would come to your aid if you had to turn to piracy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. You just oh. said that in the same way. Yeah, that was Didn't... the point. <laughs> <laughs> I was repeating your sentiment back to you. Okay, yeah. We're sharing the love. Sharing the love. Like it. Mutual love. There we go. Her important friend was not (laughs) one of us. It was King Edward III. Oh, that's a great friend. I know. She asked him for help and he helped her to gather a fleet. So she sold her remaining lands, the ones that hadn't been confiscated, and with the proceeds and with the aid of Edward, she got herself three warships. She painted them black, ran up blood red sails and dubbed it it the Black Fleet. Well... That's not as creative as it could have been, but oh, I like it all the let, same. Let's talk about creativity. Do you want to name what she what she named her flagship? Oh, I don't know. My Revenge. Oh, the pirate ship Revenge. I love My it. My Revenge. <laughs> yeah, that's My yeah, Revenge. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like it. That's good. It's good. So she's not subtle in any no, way. She's, she's not. like Philippe, Charles, I am coming for you. <laughs> In my ship, my revenge. Yeah. So (laughs) rumours started to swirl about this woman because she made a name for herself pretty quickly. She sailed out on the English Channel seeking out French ships, particularly, of course, those that belonged to the king. And her crew, under her direction, of course, were merciless in Mm. their attacks and they would attack the ships and leave a skeleton crew to return to France and to spread word of Clisson's fury oh, and her desire for vengeance. I love that. I love leaving a few people alive to tell the story. You've got to do that. why we have stories. You've yep. always got to leave a survivor. Yeah. Everybody out there, if you go on, not don't that we're advocating, but if you do. Don't go on any kind of, no, just don't. <laughs> There's no if. Leave a survivor is all I'm saying. Yeah. Someone to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously don't. But if you do, <laughs> obviously don't. But if you were like the Dread Pirate Roberts yeah. on the pirate ship Revenge, then you would do that. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, like I said, these rumors of course started to swirl because of these survivors that she's leaving behind. People said that she wreaked absolute havoc, that she took down her enemies with glee, that she hacked at them with an ax. Apparently she would decapitate her enemies with this, what became an infamous axe. And an axe is an interesting choice of weapon for a lady of the time as well, because axes were also kind of really more associated with the lower classes than with aristocracy. The aristocracy Mm. used swords. Yeah, for sure. If a woman was to be armed, she was not armed with a big off, fuck off, hefty axe. Yeah. That's so, yeah, it's very unladylike. Yes. And so she's wielding this fucking axe going ape shit on these ships apparently just delighting in the bloodshed and again though these are rumors and we have to remember that so she these exploits earned her the moniker the lioness of Brittany, which is the english name in french her name was the tigress which is the tigress not lioness and i wonder if this difference is between the importance that the French put on lions, you know, as, as these kind of associations of heraldic and yeah. heroics and stuff. But yeah, so what I, I just want to make clear is that, of course, when these rumors swell, they tend to get exaggerated and she would be turned into a monster, you know. It mm. starts with her decapitating one dude <laughs> and, suddenly, and then suddenly it's blown out of proportion. That's right. Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe she did. <laughs> maybe she did yeah don't know this is my point we don't know both things are true at once it is schrodinger's lioness cat okay lioness yeah <laughs> eventually she did actually i mean she formed a proper alliance with the english which technically made her a privateer rather than a pirate. Uh, yes and we've talked about that before we've talked about privateering mm. before i'm sure when we've talked about pirates yeah so she had now properly aligned herself with the english and so she would you know do things like sneak supplies to english ships during battle and helped them out basically and remember that this is the beginning of the hundred years war so there's a lot of beef between the french and the english mm. basically mm-hmm. not just in this particular war over Brittany that she's involved in as well Now, her violent exploits may have inspired her son, Olivier V. So he was the five-year-old who had been with her when she took him to see the (laughs) father's... He wasn't just called Olivier V because he was five years old. (laughs) No. no. And then every year they have to change it. No, Olivier VI. Olivier the 73rd. Okay, no, that's not why he's called that. But he went on to become something of a great warrior as well and he also earned himself a rather... Awesome and mm, violent moniker, The Butcher. Ooh. Yeah. So after he and his mother washed up on English shores, he stayed behind in England and he was raised in the court of King Edward III alongside John Montfort IV, who was the future claimant of the controversial Ducal Throne of Brittany. Remember? Yeah, I do. This is our important The people remember. Throne. The people remember. Good. Yeah. <laughs> And so I wonder if his mother's quest for revenge was inherited by the son and perhaps, you know, that sight of his father's head on the ramparts all those years ago, wedged really deeply in his psyche, his little fledgling five-year-old psyche. How could it not, though? Like how could that not lodge into the (laughs) psyche of a five-year-old in one way or another? Well, because, I mean, I guess what makes him sort of unique is that he was quite famous for his guerrilla campaigns against the French, Mm -hmm. right? Because medieval fighting was very structured and regimented Mm -hmm. and, you know, pirates are pretty much guerrilla fighters. It's all about, you know, surprising your enemy and not using those typical military structures. And apparently her son was very much the same. Mm -hmm. So there we go. Now, I want to bring in another woman into this story, okay? Okay. Right. Well, where have we got her? We've got her on pause. She's on the seas. She's wreaking havoc. She's sending back stories. Yep. Everyone back in France is shitting their pants. Correct. Yep. And there was another woman that they would also come to feel the same level of mixture of fear and admiration Mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember uh, Joanna? No. She is the wife of John Montford the man who lost the claim to the Brittany seat to Charles de Blois. Yep. All right. Yep. Yep. Got her. Now she, very much like Jean, was having none of it. Mm. After her husband Jean was 
also imprisoned by King Philippe, who swore that John would be ensured safe passage to have an audience about this whole dispute. Uh-huh. That sounds like and another, then, another trap. Yeah. Yeah, another trap. So, mm, Philippe, bit of a dick, perhaps. <laughs> and she too swore her revenge. So she announced her son, John the Fourth, who was a baby at the time. Okay, so remember he grew up alongside Olivier V. Oh, yeah, yep, yep. She claimed him to be the rightful heir of Brittany and went on to wage a war in his honour. So like Jean, she too gathered an army and attacked the French forces at Redon. And she then went on to Hennembeau, another castle in Brittany, and prepared for a siege. When Charles and his army arrived, she was ready. She encouraged the town to fight, uh, including the women, who she urged to, quote, cut their skirts and take their safety in their own hands. So there's a siege happening. Charles and all of his men are out the front. So she climbs this tower and she looks out over the encampment and she noticed that the guards were in short supply one day. So knowing that this was her opportunity, she led 300 men on a charge, burning down Charles's supplies and destroying his tent. And this earned her the kick-ass moniker, Jean Laflamme. The Flame! Jean the Flame! I like it. Well, yeah, she set something on fire. We'll call her the Flame. Yeah. Would you prefer to be the Lioness of Brittany or Alicia the Flame? Uh, I don't think Alicia the Flame has a very good ring to it. But I think <laughs> I, I – yeah, all right. I'll go with lioness. Lioness? Yeah. yeah. I reckon I like cats. True. I also like True. fire. But <laughs> Yeah. And you're a redhead, so it would be hard to argue your way out of being la flamme. What if I was the flaming lioness Ooh. instead? I like it. Bringing them together. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, that. though, we've got some really good nicknames for these women. Yeah, got some for good sure. titles. But – Though she'd burnt down part of his encampment, the siege wasn't over. So while many of his supplies had been destroyed, Charles decided to try and starve out the town. But then from her window, she saw the English arriving in the harbour. And with their aid, she was able to fight off Charles' troops. So Joanna returned to England as well with the fleet to try to secure more reinforcements from King Edward. So just as he supplied Jean with her ships, he also helped Joanna. I also want to note at this point that I really like that Edward is clearly not at all put off by the fact that these are two vengeance-seeking women that he's entrusting with. He's like, yeah, here you go. Have some fucking ships. Exactly. Go for it. Take these ships. Take these men. Have some money. Fucking go for it. We all hate the French. You girls slay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Give it your best shot. Yeah. So, while Jean took care of the French by sea, Joanna took care of them on land. But first she had to get there. So, her ships were intercepted on her return to Brittany and she was forced into hand-to-hand combat. And apparently she fought with a glaive, which is basically a sharp blade on the end of a pole, a single-edged blade on a pole, a pole arm. Yeah. And according to her contemporary Jean Froissart, who chronicled the event, she fought with the heart of a lion. Well, we've already got a lion, so there's no more, no more room for lions. <sighs> Alicia, it's the Middle Ages. They're obsessed with lions. They are obsessed with lions. They, they love them. They've never seen they anything do. like a lion. Yeah, they can't imagine it. Enough. Yeah. Cool. Lions are cool. Lions I'm, I'm with are cool. Mm. I like lions. We yeah. should all love lions. <laughs> So on land, her troops battled their way into an eventual amnesty with the French. And in 1343, her husband, John, was released. So he oh. hadn't actually been murdered. He had just been was, imprisoned. Yeah, I forgot he was even still alive. All right, mm. good. But then he was imprisoned again. Oh. <laughs> then he escaped and went oh, back to the fighting. Him. But then he died in 1345. So oh, he, okay. yeah, a lot of fuss for not much. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, look, the reason I wanted to talk about Joanna as well in in Jean's story is because there's so much that they share in common. They both lost their husbands to Dubois. They both took up arms against the French king. They both terrified the pants off of anybody who came across them. And they Mm. both earned themselves fucking cool nicknames in the process. Yeah. And with the backing of the English king. Yes. And also I think they both sort of demonstrate that idea that noble women were not yeah, they weren't just like sitting around in their towers mm, watching mm-hmm. the world pass them by. Like they did do stuff and they're not the only women who were doing stuff. 
in yes. this time, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I think if I was making a movie about this, and this is where I would bring in a little bit of creative license because some people like to think that Jean and Joanna were friends. Pals. and yeah. yeah, of course. We really want this version of the story to be true. I certainly do. I want them to be lady besties. Like but they probably never even met. Well, they probably knew each other. Because they knew of each other or they knew each other well, personally? Well, they definitely would have known of each other. Whether they knew each other if they'd ever met, I'm not sure, but it's likely that they would have because the nobility of Brittany was not huge and they're all very interconnected, you know. Mm, so that's true, marrying everybody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Charles de Bois fought, well, first he fought against John Monford, but, you know, so like they probably did all know each other. But that doesn't mean that they're friends, you yeah. know, even though I would love them to be. And then if, if I was to make a film version of this. You'd just I, bend the truth a I bit. would. I totally would. I totally would bend the truth and make them friends because that would be great. I would watch that movie a hundred times. I'd watch it. Well, that's what creative license is all about. So you can do that. That's right. You have my blessing. <laughs> <laughs> However, something that Jean may have been a little bit envious about with her fellow Lady Vengeance Rika though was that it was Joanna indeed, who was the one to get Charles oh. de Blois in the end, their mutual enemy. In 1347, Joanna's troops, and I have to be honest, I don't think that she was fighting up the front of this battle. I think that these were the troops under her command. Yep. They captured Charles in battle, but it didn't mean that her family, the Montforts, had won yet. Instead, she returned to England. She must have been feeling pretty good about herself after all this. However, Edward, who <laughs> we thought he was so great, right? Yeah, he was on board. We were singing his praises. We were like, Oh, no. Now Edward. Yes, all this trust in women. Great. Yeah, well, I think he probably, with Charles out of the way, he probably wanted to consolidate his own power in Brittany. And he kind of turned on her. Oh. And he kind of had her imprisoned. <gasps> and he claimed that it was because she was insane. What? Yeah. Yeah. And what was this insanity based on? The fact that she was a woman who'd been heading a, an army? I guess or... so. Yeah, I guess so. Because there's not actually not really any evidence that she was. No. Like that she was had any real mental health problems at all. It's probably just a convenient thing to say when you want to get rid of a powerful woman. This is something oh, yeah, that's happened throughout history and exactly. continues to happen. And no one had any recourse to fight against that kind of charge. Absolutely not. No. Couldn't bring in your local, like, mental health worker. To, no, to you give know, you an assessment. Clear your name. We'll get the social worker in and, like, yeah, have a chat about it. No. no. No, that couldn't happen back then. But what they did have in 1347 was they had men willing to, like, rescue you from shit. Yeah. So, yeah, she was Chivalry. rescued. She was rescued by this guy whose name was maybe Warnia de Guiston. And he stole <laughs> Wait, her. His away. name wasn't maybe. It, well, it was either Warnia or Warmer. Okay, but it wasn't maybe. No, it wasn't maybe. No, okay. No. Maybe either Warmer or Warnia de Guiston. Okay. And he stole her away from Tickle Castle, which is where she was being imprisoned. And they Why? fled. They fled. Because what, she was like, being imprisoned against her will under false charges of insanity. But what was that to him? I Who don't was know. he to her? I didn't get that deep into the story. <laughs> it's not Joanna's story, it's Jean's story. Okay, I'm just yeah, telling enough. it All to right, give fine. us a fun yeah. parallel. Okay. Yeah. Her story is nearly finished, by the way, in case this is not an interesting story, because I thought it was an interesting <laughs> story. Eventually, her son, John IV, was victorious and returned to the Dukey. And so they won. Hurrah, huzzah, Joanna did contribute to the Monfords returning to the ducal seat of Brittany. Ah, there you go. But it was not until 1364 and she actually herself never returned to Brittany. Okay. Well, she, I guess she was uh, on the run. She was an owl. Yeah, that's right. She was fleeing with that guy. The who turned up. Just that guy. <laughs> I was like, I will rescue you. All right. Yeah, I don't I know, know who you are. Sure, let's go. 
Um, she did leave a strong legacy. So Froissant, that chronicler I was talking about before, oh, he yes. had this to say of her. Mm. In those qualities admired by chivalry, she was unquestionably an extraordinary woman, courageous and personally valiant, with a head to plan daring exploits and a heart to conduct her through the thick of the danger, impulsive and generous, a free-handed ruler and an admirer of those deeds of chivalrous daring in others which she was so willing to share in herself. One cannot read her story without enthusiasm, yet one would like to know more of the woman before bestowing unreserved praise on the countess, who was worth a man in a fight and who had the heart of a lion. <laughs> who was worth a man in a fight. That's yes, good. that's high praise in the 14th century. <laughs> that Olivia. is high praise, isn't it? I was like, oh, gee, she's worth a man. Like, oh, oh. She's as good as a man. Oh, my goodness. Oh, watch this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Impulsive and generous. I like that she's being given the qualities of chivalry mm, mm-hmm. because that idea of chivalry at this time is so important. Mm. You know, chivalry is all about those qualities that knights are, suppo- you know, this symbol of power and goodness and mm, mm-hmm. what Honor. else? Honour, you know, in and a very particularly masculine yeah. way. And nobility as well. Like, But in that terms of that idea that you're fighting for something noble. Yeah. And those are traits that are attributed to her. And her gender is not really drawn into this really much mm. at all, except to say that she was worth a man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, otherwise, if you removed that, that could just be the description of a man. And I just want to point that out because I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's really cool and remarkable. And it's also said that she might have inspired Joan of Arc. Oh, so yeah. Joan of Arc, of course, came along at the other end of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. So that's happening at the same time. Let's come back to Jean now, Jean de Clisson. As we know, she'd been doing a similar, following a similar path, tearing up the seas with her own vendetta against Charles and King Philippe. But like I said, per- sadly for her, she never did get to personally wreak her revenge on Charles de Bois. But I hope that she was happy knowing that Joanna had done it for her, you know, her, her sister in vengeance. And after 13 years of piracy and privateering, she eventually decided to hang up her pirate boots. By this time, she had actually lost her first son, Geoffrey, who died in the Battle of La Roche d'Erienne, another victim of the Breton War of Succession. She'd lost her second son, of course, Guillaume, who died at sea, and of course, her husband. So, you know, no wonder she had so much fight in her. But in 1356, when she was in her mid-50s, she finally found love again. Oh, hello. Didn't see that coming. No, she was a badass Axe-wielding pirate lady. I wonder what Looking kind of man. <laughs> yes. That's what she's put on her Tinder thing. <laughs> That's her description right there. Axe-wielding, lioness of Brittany, getting a little lonely. beheading people and sword fighting on ships and revenge. <laughs> no French may apply, yeah, please. That's right. No French dick pics, please. <laughs> Because her new husband was a knight named Walter Bentley. He was a military deputy to King Edward III. And the two retired together to the castle of Hennembon, which was where Joanna had defended herself and the town against Charles' siege a decade before. And this is in the, you know, a poor town by the seaside in Brittany. He had been awarded quite a healthy parcel of land, you know, so they had some wealth. Delightful. She's probably pretty comfortable and she lived out her life here until she passed at the age of 59 ish in 1359 yeah right well she that sounds about right if she was born in 1300 i'd say that 58 59 around adds up stacks up oh that's a nice little ending to some hatchet yeah so she remarkably survived (laughs) survived these 13 years of piracy and battle but that's what we've talked about before right like we've talked about that Definitely in terms of Xing mm. Shi, about the fact that the mark of success for a pirate is the fact that you can walk away from it and retire. <laughs> retire, and live yeah, out the yeah. rest of your life. Like that is the mark of success. And do you know what's interesting is that had she stayed on land, I mean, she probably would have been safe at court, but she also survived the Black Plague. Oh, oh dear. This is like the Black Plague was what, like the 13th? 
1340s, I think, mid-1300s, right? So she maybe because she was self-isolating on a ship yeah. at sea, like just didn't <laughs> come into contact with anybody with the Black Plague. So she managed to survive not just piracy but also the Black Death. Amazing. It is. And like you said, she got to retire and that is really the mark of a successful pirate. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad she found love again. Yeah. And fun story. So her story was turned very loosely into a novel named Jean de Belleville, published in 1868. And here's the funnest story of all the stories. Apparently, her ghost walks the halls of the Castle Clisson. Oh, yes. Sweet. So if you're ever at the Castle Clisson, watch out for the Lioness of Brittany, Jean de Clisson. Just as a very last little tidbit before we go, a couple of the other women, because I mentioned that there was a few other women who proved this kind of, you know, well, go towards proving the rule that not all noble women mm. were housebound mm. baby makers. There was Jean Pentievre, who <laughs> was good. the daughter of Guy, Jean's oh, second right. husband, okay. remember? Yeah. She was Charles de Blois' wife. And so she was very important uh-huh. and she also wielded a lot of power in this time. She didn't fight like the other women did, which is why I didn't include her particularly in this story, but she certainly has a long kind of important legacy as well. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, of course, she's also Jean de Clisson's former stepdaughter. Yeah. (laughs) Which is weird. Must be some influence there, surely. And she also had a fun nickname, which is not quite as cool as the others. Her name was Jean the Lame. Oh, that's not... No, that's the lame. Is that because she actually was like, did she actually have a disability? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, maybe it was. I took that in the totally 90s version. No, I feel like it's probably not at all. I feel like it probably means she had a disability, Lauren. Probably she did, which makes her story even more remarkable. Yeah, really. If that's the case. Really. Yeah. So there was her. There was also Philippa of Hainault, who was Edward III's wife, who defended England against the Scots while Edward was off fighting the French. So she led armies into battle as well at the same time. And then, of course, coming hot on their heels was Joan of Arc, Jean d'Arc. So I just wanted to shout out to this collection of women at this period of time who are you know, off fighting many fights. But, of course, an important caveat to this is that these were wealthy, noble women (laughs) and they were afforded a lot of privileges that were not afforded to your ordinary woman. So that's just something to keep in mind as well. But was Joan of Arc a noble woman? No. She wasn't. No, she was not. She was a a lowly peasant peasant girl. Yeah. Yes. She's the exception to that rule. But I was going to say exactly that, though, is that it goes to show that, you know, when we find these stories of women and it is like, oh, you know, look at this exceptional woman, Mm. you know, that idea of being exceptional or that idea that there are other women who aren't capable of that or who didn't do it, well, Mm. it's obviously false because there obviously are, you know, other cases that show that there were women doing this and obviously not hundreds and hundreds of them because not hundreds and hundreds of them had the opportunity to or, you know, the ability to or or whatever. But it is definitely the case that there aren't just these little exceptional, unique women scattered throughout history. Mm -hmm. There is a collection of them. These are just the women who were involved in this one war of succession. Yeah, exactly. You know, over this couple of decade period. So like... In this one part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Mm. So there you go. That's my story of Jean de Clisson, the lioness of Brittany. I like it. Thank you so much for taking us back to some piracy, taking us back to the Middle Ages. Yeah. I hope all of the names and the battles didn't get too confusing, but it's really difficult to talk about medieval history without it being all about... I feel like that's the only thing that anyone ever chronicled from the Middle Ages. Well, that's right. You know, and we've, talk- battles. we've talked about that as well. You know, that idea of, you know, the further back you go in history, the harder it is to find mm. these stories because they're only documented for certain reasons, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. But as well, you know, hopefully this also means that this is a period of history that we can go back to and some of those other women who you've mentioned might end mm. up getting covered on the list one of these days i mean one of these days good old joan jones or you know but there's so many jones there's so many jones 
But also I feel like Joan's a little bit obvious, isn't she, you know? Oh, Joan of Arc? Joan of Arc. Yeah. But I, I, we'll get to her one day because the other thing as well, though, I think that is interesting is often those women who we do think we know or those iconic women, often that's all we know about them. We don't actually mm. really know their true stories. So mm-hmm. they are worth looking at in detail, I think. So we will get to someone like Joan of Arc one of these days, won't we? Definitely. I'm yeah. sure. If we're running long enough. Yeah. <laughs> if we're going for so long, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But thank you for taking us there and hopefully next time around we'll also get to go to, well, actually we might end up in this same period of history. Can you give us any hints about where we're going next time? Yeah, I can unless I change my mind between now mm. and the next episode. So Is that likely? <laughs> who knows? Okay. Who knows? Well, maybe we'll leave it for now and right. uh, we'll find out next time. We will. In a fortnight. In we two will. weeks. It's yep. not that long. Yeah. So, of course, in the meantime, you can catch up on all our past episodes on Acast, iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like even more content, you can join us on Patreon for as low as $2 a month where you can catch up on all of our holes in history where we cover women like Ruan Lingyu, the uh, a silent actress of Chinese cinema. And we've had a lot of new, quite a lot of new Patreons come on board mm. in the last month or so. So it's so welcome, awesome. everybody. Welcome. And it's wonderful to see you there. And hopefully we'll have a few more Patreons come on board in the near future as well. Yeah. Of come course, join the fam. Yeah, please do. And, of course, you can um, also buy Deviant Women merchandise on Etsy, except yeah, at the moment if you don't live in Australia, you can't. <laughs> simply because the COVID-19 crisis unfortunately has made shipping internationally practically impossible unless yeah. you want to spend a fortune on it. And we don't want to pass those costs on to you. So no. we've suspended international shipping just for the time being. But once the world looks like it's returning to some kind of normality, we will be able to get those goods out to you again. Yeah. So bear Absolutely. with us and we will definitely be able to get that stuff out to you again sometime in the future and of course if you can't afford to support us financially we understand this is crisis times after all but you could leave us a review a five-star review if you really like us on itunes would really appreciate that that helps us to stay in the charts and find more audience people like you who love awesome women's history and so as always we have to say a very big thank you to brendan davies for the sound to india hui for the music and to dan our executive producer and that's all from us stay safe be well and we will see you all in a couple of weeks see you then bye